This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Good morning again. Before we jump in, I want to share a chapel praise story with you. So in in 2023, we're sharing stories of what God has done and uh, just kind of sharing those each week. If you have one, you can send it to us at praise at christianchapel.com. Today's comes from Lacey Randall. Lacey and her husband Jason are members of Christian Chapel along with their two young daughters. Lacey says, a little over a year and a half ago, I was bombarded with anxiety and overwhelmed after the arrival of our second daughter. I entered into what would become an extended season of despair and depression. It was debilitating. At the same time, I began experiencing chronic infections that seemed unsolvable and called for prescription medicine every few months. By last summer, the summer of 2022, I began having severe joint pain in my knees and hands to the point that I couldn't hardly bend down to pick up my baby or play with my toddler. I started experiencing tingling in my hands and my fingers would draw up at night. One morning, I woke up with one finger stuck in a bent position. It did not resolve day after day and week after week. There were typical everyday things like putting my daughter's hair in a ponytail that I couldn't do with my fingers stuck like that. I was beginning to feel overwhelmed by all the unexplainable health issues I was enduring. I'd previously been a relatively healthy, active young mom. One evening, the story in the Bible where Jesus asks, is it easier for me to forgive you of your sins or to say, get up and walk, came to mind. As I thought about it, I felt that I should pray and ask God to heal my finger. I began to repent, knowing that God had and would forgive my sins. I repented for all the lies I'd been believing and building my life on over the last year, the anxiety, the depression, the lack of purpose. None of that was true, and none of it was from God. As I was praying about that, I suddenly noticed that my finger had opened about halfway. I continued to pray, and my finger opened all the way back to normal. The physical healing was a miracle, and I was terribly excited, but the greater miracle was that in that same moment, the heavy, dark cloud of despair and depression that had saturated my life for over 12 months was lifted and did not and has not returned. And so each week we're reading those stories and then we're stopping to pray those prayers as well. And so today I want to pray two specific prayers. First of all, we want to pray if uh, you're here and you're experiencing any kind of joint pain, any kind of limited movement, mobility, any of that, we're going to pray that God releases gifts of healing in your life. And then second, we're going to pray if you're suffering under that heavy cloud of depression, it's an experience that many of us have walked through at different times and different seasons. And we're going to pray that this morning you just begin to experience that supernatural lifting of that and that that heavy dark cloud is replaced by just light and joy and life today. So um, if either one of those are you, Uh, feel free to just reach and grab somebody's hand next to you or just put yourself in a a position of surrender. Maybe just kind of turn your palms over. We're just going to pray and ask God to do those things. So Jesus, we come to you and we thank you for Lacey's story of healing. We thank you for the way that you worked in her life physically to restore movement and mobility. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that you came and lifted that cloud of depression that had hung over her for so long in such a, a damaging and debilitating way. 
And Jesus, as we thank you for what you have done, we also ask, will you do it again? Lord, you see those in the room and online with us today who are experiencing uh, just the, the effects of sickness and disease in their body in a way that they can't move, they can't function as they like. Lord, you see the effects of arthritis and other sicknesses, other diseases that have attacked joints, that have attacked fingers and hands and shoulders and knees and hips and backs and necks. And today, Lord, we pray, will you release your gifts of healing? Will you restore movement and motion? Will you remove pain? Will you destroy inflammation? Will you build back what has been destroyed by disease? Lord, we pray today that that even as we stand at the end of service today to sing and to pray, that we would be surprised by the healing that we've received in our bodies. And Jesus, we also pray for those who are with us in person, those who are with us online, who are suffering under that cloud of depression this morning. Lord, whatever the cause may be, whether it's known or unknown, however long that experience has resided, we ask today, Lord, that you would release your supernatural power and just begin to lift off that heavy burden, begin to restore joy, begin to restore hope, begin to give us a new vision, a a fresh experience of who you are in this moment. We believe, God, that you are not only the Lord of the mountaintops and the Lord of successes, but we believe that you're the God of the valleys. We believe you're the one who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. We believe that you are the God of the dark nights of the soul and that there is no experience we have that ever pushes you away from us. And so, Jesus, we pray today, will you draw near to us? Will you lift our eyes up and will you restore our joy as only you can? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So again, as God begins to answer those prayers, send them to us, praise at christianchapel.com. Today we are continuing our message series from the book of Acts called Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Church. We're exploring uh, kind of story by story our way through the the story of Acts and remembering that it's not just a description of what happened a long time ago, but it is a, a prescription for what should still be happening in our lives today. Before we jump into that, though, today is a special Sunday for us at Christian Chapel in a couple ways. First of all, we launched our 8 a.m. service this morning. Um, so I know some of you, you meant to be there. Next week, we'll see you there. You, you just you couldn't, quite, couldn't quite get there. Um, but it, it, it went great. People showed up. So uh, just know you won't be alone when you come next week. And uh, it was a good experience for us. That's creating a little more room in 915, which creates a little more room in 1045 in these weeks leading up to Easter for us. We appreciate that. So fun for that. Also fun because right now, uh, you are in a very special service, whether you know it or not. Right now in the 915 service, Christian Chapel is 49 years old as a church. And we have uh, 38 years of our lead pastors represented here this morning. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm coming in the back, I think, at like 9 and a half, 10. Pastor Richard Exley served from 1982 to 92, is visiting with us this morning. And then uh, Greg Davis, Mr. Reliable, was 95 to 2013. So, um, just a, a really, really fun day. And so these guys, they are... They are older than me. They are wiser than me. They probably led Christian Chapel better than I did. I think the only thing I have for sure is I'm the youngest one of us right now. 
Outside of that, I, I don't know. I think they both, their hair is battling mine. They probably have more than I do. My grays are coming up quick. So in another five years, we're all going to look the same, and no one will know the difference. But uh, it, it'll be good. I am thrilled that they're here. If you haven't met either one of those guys, your, your life would be better if you said hello to them. So we're, we're honored by them. Everything we're experiencing now is built on the shoulders of men and women who came before us. And, and so that, that starts way back in the book of Acts, and continues in the history of our local church as well. Today, though, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and we're kind of on the end of the day of Pentecost. Peter gets up, he, uh, after the Holy Spirit is poured out, and, and there's, it's created this reaction. People begin to ask, what does it mean? Peter gets up, he tells them who Jesus is, he tells them what Jesus has done, and he brings the crowd to a point of decision where they have to make a decision. Either Jesus is who Peter says he is, and there's something we have to do, or we're going to reject this entirely. Uh, Now, when it comes to making decisions, some of us are very decisive, some of us are very indecisive, but we have all, I'm sure, found ourselves at some point in life just expressing that idea of, will somebody make a decision? Maybe you're a parent of toddlers and you're just trying to get out of the house in the morning and they can't decide if they want the shoes, the sandals, or one of each. And you're just yelling like, just decide. I don't even care at this point. Get pants on and let's go. We can put the shoes on in the car. It doesn't matter. Maybe it's with your spouse or with your friends where somebody asks the dreaded and unanswerable question, where are we going to eat? And nobody knows where they want to eat. They only know where they don't want to eat, right? Well, what do you want? I don't care. I'll eat anything. How about this? Not that, right? And, and then you go down, and, and eventually, if it's like my car with my family, it ends with somebody yelling, make a decision, and whoever's driving saying, this is where we're going, while the other four people complain, right? And so we just, we have those experiences, and we know, and yet we also understand there are points in life, seasons and situations, moments and relationships where to not make a decision is to make a decision, That at some point, you just have to go for it. And what Peter is going to show us today is that when we begin to understand who Jesus is, it leads us to a point of decision. And so we'll read through Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 36, read through verse 41. If you have a Bible, you can follow along with me. If not, it'll be here on the screen for you. Peter says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Lord. And Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So when we first hear about Jesus in our life and especially in our culture, it's tempting uh, for many of us to kind of hear that as, okay, I, I like him. And culturally, what you find is there are people who are anti-Christian, who are anti-faith, but would still identify as pro-Jesus. We got a lot of Jesus fans in our culture. That's true in the United States. It's particularly true in Tulsa. 
And, and so what we find often is people who know a little bit about Jesus. They like some of what he says, at least the portions of it that they've chosen to like and to accept. And generally, people are fans of Jesus and his views on the poor and his views on power and riches and corruption and his views on loving each other and, and serving each other. People are fans of Jesus. And yet what what Peter is pointing us towards here in Acts chapter 2 is that fandom was never an option when it came to Jesus. And now now it's hard for us because fandom is such a part of our culture and a part of our life. We're fans of lots of things. We're fans, if if you're married, hopefully you're a fan of your spouse. You're you're probably fans of your kids if you have them on some days and in some ways. Uh, you're, You're fans of your parents, maybe on occasion. You're fans of politicians and political parties. We're fans of... Uh, of news personalities and news programs. We're fans of teams and athletes. We're fans of actors and musicians and artists and celebrities and influencers and all of these other things. And, and the, the reason that we can some, sometimes be tempted to just become fans of Jesus is because fandom presents itself with a lot of passion, with a lot of energy. It seems like it's really at the core of who you are and what you care about. And yet, as you work through Acts chapter 2, what you see Peter telling us is that Jesus didn't come to be a role model. He didn't come to be a good teacher. He did not come to be somebody that you look up to, somebody that you applaud from the sidelines. He didn't come to be someone that you thought, maybe in some areas of my life, I'll try to be like him. But Peter makes it clear to us in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter makes it clear. Jesus came to be the Savior of the world, and he came to be the Savior of your life. He didn't come to start a fan club. He didn't come to recruit admirers. He came to wipe away the stains of sin and erase the finality of death. He came to be, as the scriptures tell us, the resurrection and the life and the only way to the Father. Which means Jesus is not interested in our fandom. He's not interested in our applause. He's not looking for our admiration or our approval. But Jesus came as Lord and Messiah looking for men and women who will recognize their need for him and completely, totally, and fully and finally surrender their lives to him. Jesus isn't looking for fans. He's looking for sons and daughters who will be welcomed into his kingdom and take their place as his followers. Now, Peter's pretty direct with the crowd and tells them, hey, this Jesus is Lord and Messiah. But before that, he says, just so you know, this Jesus whom you crucified. There were probably people in the crowd that day who in some way had participated, observed, or celebrated the crucifixion of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when Peter speaks these words, it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, when they were cut to the heart, it means they experienced conviction. And so as we're reading through Acts chapter 2, one of the things that we want to understand is who Jesus was and what Jesus did. We also want to understand how we respond to it. Now, one of the the first experiences that all of us have when we hear about Jesus is one of conviction. 
One of where we too are cut to the heart. And what does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit comes and cuts through the noise of your life. He comes through the, cuts through the messages of culture. He cuts through all the questions, all of the doubts, all of the fears, all of the uncertainties. He cuts through all of that and begins to convict you, begins to show you who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And as you begin to understand who Jesus is, deep in your soul, you have this feeling of unease, of discomfort, this stirring, this longing, and immediately the enemy will attack that to try to quiet it, to try to distract you, to try to do anything you can. What we learn in Acts chapter 2 is when we are understanding who Jesus is and experiencing that conviction, our job is not to turn away from it, our job is to turn toward it. In fact, this work of conviction is exactly what Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would do. In John chapter 16 verse 8, Jesus, speaking about the Holy Spirit, said, When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Holy Spirit comes to teach us that conviction is a gift. Conviction is not something to run away from. Conviction is not a form of God punishing you. And and culturally, this is hard for us to understand because we live in a culture where we do not seek out any form of constructive criticism or input from anyone else. I I know as a a pastor, one of my roles is I'm a boss as well. And so as a boss, I do performance reviews on an annual basis with all of our staff. I have one staff member who enjoys it, and his name is Chris Godfrey, right? Because Chris is is just, he's like, hey, let's go. Tell me what I did well. Tell me where I need to improve. Give me a list, and and I'm going to, I mean, if you say let's improve this over the year, I'm going to have it done in like four weeks, right? So, and then I'll come back in. You can tell me how well I did. Like, that's the way he's wired. I've got some other staff members that it's performance review time, and we have wonderful, wonderful pastors at Christian Chapel. And they come in, and I don't know what their view of me is, but it changes in that moment. And they come in, and they're scared, and they're quiet, and I mess with them. And No, I, not really, not really. We don't Michael Scott that situation. We just, we, we stay on track, and we do it well, and we, we stay through it, but none of us want that. But then, then culturally, we take it a step further of, of the message of our culture right now is you do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want, and if other people have a problem with it, they're never allowed to say anything to you. Right? Our new definition of tolerance is not only do you have to let me live my life, you have to celebrate every choice that I'm making. And if you don't celebrate me, and so then here comes the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus to convict the world of sin, to convict the world of righteousness, and to convict the world about judgment. What does that mean? That means the Holy Spirit comes and he tells each and every one of us, without Jesus, you are a lost, lonely, dead, helpless, hopeless sinner. There is no good that resides in you. There is no salvation in you. There is nothing righteous in you. There is no one who's righteous. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Holy Spirit comes and begins to do this work of conviction inside of us. Now, culturally, if you voice this experience you're having to other people, what most of our world is going to tell you is, that's not true, just do what you want scripturally, what we're told is when you experience that gift of conviction, you turn toward it. Because as you turn toward it and the Holy Spirit begins to tell you the truth about who you are as a sinner, he's also going to tell you the truth about who Jesus is as a Savior. 
To convict the world about righteousness is to show you you're unrighteous, but there is a righteous one. There is a one who's made a way. There is a hope. There is an eternal future. There is security. There is an identity as a son, as a daughter of God. But if you won't embrace the conviction of sin, you will not receive this conviction about righteousness. And then he says the Holy Spirit will also convict us about judgment, reminding us that if we refuse Jesus, we are choosing to remain in the place of God's judgment. There are two camps. There are those who are with God and those who are against God. And the only way into God's camp is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so we want to embrace conviction as a gift. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, it is not to shame us. It is not to condemn us. It is not to elevate other Christians above us. And, and, and maybe, depending on your church background, this might be why the idea of conviction is so off-putting to you. Because where you grew up, conviction was all about somebody else telling you why they were a better Christian than you and highlighting all these areas where you needed to get in line if you were going to belong. But conviction as a work of the Holy Spirit is just the Holy Spirit coming to say, hey, that's not who you are. That's not who God created you to be. And we, we dedicated a baby this morning. One of, my, one of my favorite parenting philosophies is one I read a couple years ago. It's actually in the book that we give to, to each family when we dedicate their baby. It's called Praying Circles Around Your Children by Mark Batterson. And in it, he has this line where he says, parents are prophets to their children. And the job of a parent, when they catch their kid living in sin, they catch their kid messing up, is to come to them and tell them, that's not who you are. That's not who God made you to be. He has a greater plan. He has a greater purpose for you. And what are we doing in that moment? We are mirroring the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Because in our sin, when the Spirit convicts us, he's coming and telling us, that's not who you are. That's not who God made you to be. There's a bigger plan. There's a brighter tomorrow. There is freedom from those experiences. But until we learn to experience conviction as a gift from God, then we'll just continue to fight against that work of the Spirit in our life. And what we see in Acts chapter 2 is that when the Spirit comes and the Spirit convicts, there's, there's really only one response. And it's the response of the crowd that day where they turn to the apostles and they say, brothers, what should we do? Well, if this is true, then what should I do? And Peter gives them a very clear, very direct answer in verse 38. It says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And so the the people ask Peter what to do, and Peter gives them a a three-step action plan. So all of our type A uh, list people, this is like Peter is speaking your love language right now. I mean, you want to know, when I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit, what do I do? Peter says three things. Do these three things. First, you're going to repent. Now, repentance is more than just saying, okay, Lord, I I sense this work of conviction, and I'm sorry about that. Repentance involves a couple things. The first step of repentance is acknowledging your sin. Repentance is, is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, convicting you of sin, revealing Jesus as your Savior. And so your first form of participation in repentance is acknowledging, I, I, not just that I have committed sins, Not just that I have participated in sins, but I am a sinner. This, without Christ, I'm not a pretty good person who needs a little bit of help. Without Jesus, I'm not right on the edge of salvation. 
But to repent is to acknowledge, without Jesus, I have willfully, joyfully, repeatedly engaged, indulged, and lived a life of sin. And the Holy Spirit, he's going to convict you in a personal and powerful way. So your acknowledgement is not going to be, I have sinned in a generic sense, in a a, a capital S sin kind of way. It's going to be, I did that, and here's all the little ways I did it. Here's the places where I let it take root in my heart. Here's the effects it had in my relationships. Here's how it shows itself in my speech. Here's how it comes out in my thoughts. Here's how it filters into the world around me. And to repent is not to sweep past the severity of our sin, but it is to stop and recognize my sin was so serious that Jesus had to die for it. It had separated me from God, and it had separated me from each other. So we're going to acknowledge it, and then in repentance, after we acknowledge it, we're going to confess it. We're going to say, Lord, this is what is in my life. This is what I did. And in that process of confession, we're not just acknowledging, but we're also asking for and receiving forgiveness. Jesus is coming, and he is separating our sin from us. He is taking it away where it is no longer part of our identity, where you are no longer just a a, a struggling sinner, but you are a completely and totally forgiven son or daughter of God. What you used to be and what you used to do is no longer who you are. The scriptures tell us that God no longer counts it against us, that he separates it from us, that he chooses to have no memory of it. And when we're confessing, we are moving from those who are aware of our sin to those who have been completely, totally, and permanently forgiven of our sin, which means that repentance is a joyful process. It's something that we should daily embrace and practice. I'm going to repent. I'm going to confess. And then the last part of repentance is I'm going to turn away from those things. When Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, it wasn't so we would be stuck in this endless loop of I'm going to sin, I'm going to acknowledge it, I'm going to confess it, I'm going to feel okay for a little bit, and then I'm going to sin again, and then I'm going to acknowledge it, and I'm going to confess it, and I'm going to do this over and over and over, and I hope that I die at just the right moment in the loop where I get to go to heaven. Right? I don't know if any of you, any of you else ever grew up in it or were in a church environment like that where they're like, is there anyone with sin in their life right now? If you got hit by a car on your way out the door, would you go to heaven? Or do you have that one sin? I'm like, I always have the one sin. I, I mean, I, I probably judged something during worship today. I was probably mad that somebody cut me off on the road. I probably said something, did something, thought something. Right? This is not, we're not supposed to get stuck in that loop. You are supposed to acknowledge it, confess it, and take your secure, permanent, eternal identity as a son or daughter of God. And you'll continue to sin in that space at times. And when you do, you'll know that I can repent, I can confess, and I can move forward. But, but where we're not supposed to get stuck is in that position of insecurity, but we're also not supposed to get stuck in this position of, well, there are just certain sins in my life that I'll never beat. I just, you know, this is just, it's who I am. It's who my dad was. It's who my grandpa was. It's who my family is. It's who we are. It's who the culture is. Like, we just, we're just, we're people that lose our temper. We're people that do this. We're people that do that. No, no, no. When you repent, you are not only acknowledging and confessing, but you are turning away and walking in a completely new direction, leaving that old way of life behind you. This is what the gospel calls us to, and this is what the gospel enables us to experience. And, and as a, another step in that direction, Peter says, not only are you going to repent, but then you're going to be baptized. 
And in baptism, what we're doing now, now baptism itself is not a, a salvation experience. There is nothing, like I know when we baptize people at Christian Chapel, there is nothing in the properties of that water that makes it holy. It is Tulsa tap water. Some of you won't even drink it without a filter. So you're definitely not going to think like those are the holy waters. If I bathe in those, I'll be good. But, but Peter tells us repent and be baptized. Why? Because baptism reminds us of the permanent work that has been accomplished through Christ in our salvation. When you are baptized, you go into those waters completely dry and you come out completely soaked. The scriptures tell us it's a picture that when you go in and you are submerged, you are dying to your old way of life, and you are being raised to new life in Christ. And all those old dead ways of living, all those old dead ways of thinking, everything about your previous way of life is left under the water, and you are raised to new life in Christ. The picture, especially of baptism by immersion, is one that teaches us there's no, thing, no such thing as someone who's kind of or sort of a Christian. When we baptize people at Christian Chapel, we baptize you all the way. Like I, I won't let you up until you are completely submerged. And so if you haven't been baptized, go to christianchapel.com slash baptism. Right? You can go there this morning. You can sign up. Because here's the thing. Why do we baptize? We baptize because Jesus commanded it. We baptize because it's an act of obedience. And we baptize because it's a symbolic gesture on our part and in our community that we now belong to the Lord and we are part of his people. And so I know at Christian Chapel, over the years, there have been people who have come to me and said, like, I've never been baptized, but I've been a Christian for like 30 years and I think it's too late. I just want to encourage you, it's never too late. Right? Today is always the day to obey. Today is always the day to surrender to the Lord. So if you've never been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're a new follower of Jesus, and, and this is the first time you're hearing about this, Sunday, April 16th, the Sunday after Easter, we're going to baptize you. And we'll bapt- you can get baptized at 8, you can get baptized at 9.15, you can get baptized at 10.45. If you're afraid it won't stick, we'll do it all three times. Like, we, will, we will baptize you, and we will celebrate. And we will celebrate because it's an act of obedience on your part. But that, that act of baptism is one where we understand I am completely dead to my old way of life, and I am completely brought up and made new in Jesus Christ. And so Peter tells the people, if you want to know what you do in response to who Jesus is, you're going to repent, and then you're going to be baptized. And, and we don't have time to get into it today, but, but they, through, there's different archaeological studies and digs that have been done around that Temple Mount area in Jerusalem, and, and they've estimated that there were, there were dozens and dozens of small pools of water around the Temple area. And so one of the objections is, well, 3,000 people, can they really be baptized? And, and the answer is historically, yes, actually they can. 3,000 people repented in one day. 3,000 people were baptized in one day. And then Peter tells them, when you repent, you take your place in God's family. When you're baptized, you make that public, and then you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And so he, what he begins to teach them is that the model of Acts chapter 2 of Jesus telling his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the gift my Father has promised, which you've heard me teach about. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The experience of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out on a group of men and women who have devoted themselves to Jesus. So it's a work that occurs after salvation and its primary purpose is to fill God's 
people with power so they can go out and make Jesus famous and they can go out and partner with the Holy Spirit. They can go out and speak words of the Holy Spirit that create conviction, that lead others into an experience of repentance and baptism and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter makes it clear, when you have said yes to Jesus and you've been baptized, you're not done. You need to receive the Holy Spirit. And just in case there were those then or now tempted to argue, well, that was just a gift for the apostles or that was just for those who follow Jesus, Peter tells them this promise is for you and it's for your children and it's for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Which means today you and I are those who are far off and we are those for whom the Lord our God has called. So if you've said yes to Jesus, you are in position to receive this promised power of the Holy Spirit. Now, now sometimes it, it often works in this order. People are saved, they're baptized in water, and they receive the Holy Spirit. But you'll see in the book of Acts, it's, it's not a, it has to happen in this way. There are times where people are saved, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they're baptized in water. There, there are times where it seems like they're saved, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, and later they're, ba- or they're, they're saved, baptized in water, and later they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it all happens on the same day. We don't know. All we know is this is the model the early church gives. This is Peter speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying whenever anyone hears about Jesus, they are to repent, they are to be baptized, and they are to receive the Holy Spirit. And so what we want to remember today is that our relationship with Jesus is never one of just intellectual conversion. It's not one where we just say, I've heard the truth of who Jesus is, and I agree in my mind, and maybe even in my heart that that's who he is. Now, I'm going to do my best to live for him by my own power. But Peter makes it clear, our relationship with Jesus is intended to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Life with Christ is life with the Holy Spirit. You and I are intended to walk in his power every single day in everything we do. Life with Jesus is fueled, strengthened, and held together by the Holy Spirit. We were never meant to do it on our own. So don't just kind of struggle your way through. Don't think that you can make it on your own. If you have confessed that Jesus is Lord, you've believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you call yourself a Christian, you've been baptized in water, and you still feel like, man, there's just something. I know there's something. Peter makes it clear that something is the Holy Spirit. And your job is not to manipulate the Holy Spirit. Your job is not to earn the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says your job is to receive the Holy Spirit. And so what that means is if I am in a place where I have not received this gift of the Holy Spirit that God promised, that Jesus taught about, that the scriptures promote, and that we see throughout church history, if I have not had that experience, then I'm going to put myself in a position of I'm going to ask and ask and ask until I receive. I'm going to seek and seek and seek until I experience And the fact that I prayed for it for 10 minutes one time at the end of a service and nothing happened does not mean this is not God's plan for you. What does Peter say? Repent, be baptized, and those of you who are especially spiritual receive the Holy Spirit. Those of you who are particularly charismatic receive the Holy Spirit. Those of you who are a little weird receive the Holy Spirit. Those of you who want to be the center of attention receive the Holy Spirit. No, he doesn't say any of that. Repent, be baptized, and all of you receive the Holy Spirit. Introverts, and extroverts receive the Holy Spirit. 
Educated and uneducated receive the Holy Spirit. Rich and poor receive the Holy Spirit. Male and female receive the Holy Spirit. Jew and Gentile receive the Holy Spirit. Long-time Christians and short-time Christians receive the Holy Spirit. Every race, every language, every nation, every people, your young men and your old men, your young women and your old women, all of us, when we are called into Christ, are called to receive the Holy Spirit. This is God's gift to us. And so we just want to put ourselves in a position of surrender. Acts chapter 2, we, we find a model for how we respond when God reveals himself to us. And it could be the revelation of salvation. It could be that it's been revealed our next step is baptism and we haven't taken it yet. It could be that he's revealing, I want to fill you with the power of my Holy Spirit and we've not experienced that yet. But watch the, the progression that the crowd goes through on the day of Pentecost. Their first question is, what does this mean? They hear the uproar in the upper room, and they say, what does this mean? Some of them are curious. Others of them begin to mock and make fun. Peter gets up, and he speaks by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he tells them, this is what it means. It means that the Holy Spirit is a gift from Jesus. It means that Jesus is the Savior of the world. It means that your sins put Jesus to death, and it means that you now have to take action. And their response is, okay, well, they've moved from what does this mean, right, uh, information, to asking, well, what do we do, asking a question of application. And so, too, for us, when, when we're following Jesus, we're going to move from this is who the Bible says he is to asking the question eventually, well, what do I do with that? And then from what do I do with that, they move from information to application, then they move to transformation. It says that they believed his message and they were baptized, they put their faith in Christ. They repented. They, they took this step of action. And for you and I, it comes to the point where we have to make a decision. We know what it means. We know what we're supposed to do. And the only question left is, will we do it? You can, can think of it another way, and probably many of us can identify this pattern in our life, where we go from curious about who Jesus is to convicted about who Jesus is. And then ideally, we're moving to converted into who Jesus is. But, but here's the thing, like your curiosity, that wasn't piqued by you. That was the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Before you were ever aware of him, he was at work helping you to be unsettled in your old dead ways of living. And so your curiosity, it might have been piqued by a friend or family member. It might have been someone who started a conversation. It could have been a book that gave you an invitation to church. It could have been dozens or hundreds of things that began to turn your attention towards the idea of, I think there's something more to life than what I'm currently experiencing. And then somewhere along the way, you heard the gospel preached. And as you heard the gospel preached, whether in a church or in a conversation or a book or a podcast or online or on TV, somewhere in that process, you experienced the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And you begin to understand that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And the Holy Spirit began to reveal Jesus as your Savior. And then you came to that point of decision of, now that I know, what will I do? And what we know about that point of decision is it's a decision that only you can make. In all of my years as a pastor, in all of my years as a follower of Jesus, in all of the people that I have talked to or with about Jesus, all the people that I have prayed with to become Christians, I can tell you with 100% confidence, I have never converted a single person. None of us in this room have ever converted a single person. We don't have that power. There are, are two things involved in your personal salvation. The sovereign work of God and your willful surrender to that work. 
And God is at work in the heart of every man, woman, and child. God is at work in the heart of everyone in the room, everyone online with us. And yet there's a decision that you have to make about that of will I obey? I know who he is. I know what's required of me. Now what will I do with it? And my encouragement to you today is whatever decision Jesus is leading you to, make it. Repent. Be baptized. Receive the Holy Spirit. God's plans are the best plans for you. And we can tell you our stories all day long of why we think this is the best choice anyone could ever make. But when it comes down to it, it's a choice that only you can make. And when you make that choice, you begin to walk into new life. You begin to walk the path that God has created you for. But it begins with your willingness to make a decision. To move past being curious. To embrace conviction as a gift. And then to take your place as the son or the daughter of God. Will you stand with me? I want to pray for us. And the band's going to come back and lead us in a final song. Jesus, we come to you today. And we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you are the one who has piqued our curiosity. You are the one who has pointed us to the reality that there is more to this life than what we see, what we hear, what we can touch. Jesus, you are the one who stirs our souls to hope that there is something greater and to long for something more. Now, Lord, we want to embrace the work of your Holy Spirit, convicting us of sin and revealing you as our source of righteousness. We want to repent of our sins. We want to confess and turn away from them. And we want to take our place as your sons and your daughters. And Lord, for those in the room or online who've made that decision to follow you, we also want to keep following you on that path of obedience. We want to follow you into the waters of baptism. We want to follow you into an experience of receiving the power of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we come today as your sons and your daughters saying, we want all that you have for us. And as you reveal what we should do, we're asking, Lord, will you give us faith and courage to take those steps on the path you're laying out for us? Help us to obey quickly. Help us to obey with joy and hope that yours is the path that leads to life. Jesus, we pray today that in whatever way we come needy today, that you would come and be our answer, that you would come and be sufficient. We surrender to you, we submit to you, whether we're beginning that relationship for the first time or we're taking our next step of obedience as a disciple. In every space, we welcome the work of the Holy Spirit to magnify Jesus to us and through us. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.